guys it's me sanchi after a really long time i say it even though it's not a long time and today i'm here with ashwini and for the first time in our life we've been graced by drum roll miss natania barin who is an author of this incredible book called queen of none along with a lot of other books she's actually a speculative writer and has num- appeared in a number of anthologies her first novel the pilgrim of the sky debuted in 2011 she's done her uh, bachelor's from loyola university maryland and masters in english from the university of north carolina so yeah hi natania hello thank hello, you for having me thank you so much for coming um the, the how we met is actually well how we how i encountered you is actually pretty funny i remember you made this uh, twitter post on something called chins mm-hmm. um and my friend actually sent it to me and that's how i came across your profile and i thought it was very interesting mm-hmm. so here we are thank you so much yeah. for coming No problem. Yeah, you never know what direction you'll meet somebody and it's kind of one of the beautiful things about social media, I think. Yeah, most definitely. And I'm so glad this happened because I genuinely really enjoyed reading your book Queen of None. It was um what can I say, a ray of sunshine in my dark dreary <laughs> world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So um Natania before we get into any details regarding you know you being an author um would you like to give us a small introduction to your book Queen of None Sure absolutely I I like to say that the Queen of None was the thesis that I never got to write in graduate school because um I I really fell in love with the Arthurian myths when I was an undergraduate but in graduate school uh for many reasons uh, I ended up writing a thesis that was very much not the story that I wanted and I had done much much a whole bunch of research in other directions and a lot of that had to do with you know a really close reading of the Arthurian tales as far back as I could go and you know we don't know exactly when they started we think the actual arthur could have been around 7th to 9th century there's all kinds of interesting um theories about that but really the inspiration behind the story was i was reading uh geoffrey of monmouth's history of the king of kings of britain and you know they kind of go through the regular you know uh uther pendragon and more uh and egraine kind of have this sort of face swapping situation where she thinks she's, you know, sitting down with her husband and it's not and it ends up being somebody else and they conceive a child and it's Arthur and you know Merlin very famous story kind of helps everything happen but in the story it says he also has a sister from the same two parents named Anna and now Arthur has all kinds of very famous sisters people have written many books about them but this sister disappeared for for all that i could tell she was absorbed into the myths of everybody else and i thought how strange that someone from the same you, you know same marriage of these two people would just disappear completely and that's really where i started asking the questions i actually tweeted today that so many of my stories come from this idea of of why not you know why not and what would happen to her what what if something what if she didn't disappear what if there's a better story for it and i liked this idea of basically creating her own prophecy because cro- prophecies are so important in arthur but that she would be forgotten so i i could pretty much do whatever i wanted and have her live this 
existence outside of the regular narrative and blend in so much of my own learning. And that's really where the inspiration came from. It was a way for me to try to put my own fingerprint on a very overwhelming, um, very amazing genre within fantasy literature that I've always loved, but really take it from a you know very feminist point of view, someone who is stuck. There's, there's no way she's going to ever escape the politics and the machinations of court. She's Arthur's sister, so she is prized chattel at best, right? She's, she's literally going to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. But I also wanted to show what kind of agency that she could have within that so that there is still a story to be had that has action and adventure, but it's not the same kind of action adventure that you hear, you know, with the Knights of the Round Table and the Holy Grail. So that's how it came to be. And I wrote the, the draft of it about 10 years ago. I sat on it for years. Every year I'd come back to it and write some more in it and edit it and change some things around. And then I had someone approach me and say, hey, do you have any books lying around? And I said, well, I have this Arthurian tale that you know got rejected once and then I got embarrassed and just threw it at the bottom of my computer. <laughs> and I love this story and I believe in it and it just needs the right editor and the right publishing house. And that's how it came to be. And they loved it and, they, and we worked on it and, and, and now it's here. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's an amazing. interesting way you put the thing that, you know, why not? You know, like like you said in your tweet. And that comes to my next question, which is basically your what's your favorite genre of writing? I, I love fantasy. I, I just do. I, I love fantasy that is unpredictable. I love I read a lot of YA fantasy because I feel like YA fantasy actually has a lot more um diversity and feminism and uh, just, you know, thoughts about people of different backgrounds and sexualities and genders. It, it It's starting to reach mainstream fantasy, but I'm not big. I mean, Tolkien was the first thing I wrote, I read that, that just made me want to write. I just love this idea of creating a world that's similar to ours, but has, you know, so many underlying incredible, incredible stories. So um, I read The Lord of the Rings probably three times over. I loved The Chronicles of Narnia, but there were always things about those stories. A, I felt left out as a woman. B, I felt that it was like the whitest thing ever in the universe. And how do you travel all these places? And either races are weird mirrors of exactly how they are in our world um, with the same prejudices and discomfort or they just don't exist right like everyone is blonde hair and blue eyes and everyone has the same kind of almost quasi religions and so um i'm lucky that i mean i've been writing fantasy most of my life but i feel like we're in a a really strong age where we're seeing more and more writers really coming to uh coming to publication with really fantastic stories that shake things up. Um, N.K. Jemisin is one of my absolute favorite authors and her Broken uh, Earth trilogy just, I mean, I, I just, I tell, I shove it at everybody I know because that's the kind of stories that I hope to write someday that, you know, obviously I cannot as a, as a white woman have obviously that, that same kind of thing, but this idea of truly making you think about things. I always, the, the example I use is that, you know, even though I read a lot of literature by people of color, I never considered hair texture. And if you read the Broken Earth trilogy, it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal because in black culture, hair texture is a big deal. And I just have wavy hair. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but it is such a thing. And, and, and with world building, 
these other perspectives are so important. So um, I tend to gravitate toward toward that a lot um, and just really trying to open up my own mind. Also, things like uh, ability and disability are very important to me as well. Um, a wonderful, wonderful series that's YA is by Fran Wilde, um, the Up Updraft series. And you don't quite realize that it's about disability right away, but then you realize that it is as you go through it. And I won't spoil why that is, but if you want to explore something that really talks about that, I think that's, that's an incredible thing as well as, as people that are neurodivergent and, you know, building characters that aren't all, you know, without crippling anxiety or depression and, and, and things like that, making sure that characters represent actual human beings and and fantasy can be such a wonderful place to explore that because there are monsters and there is magic and then trying to figure out how where those things overlap and how that impacts humanity is is really fascinating to me we have some really similar tapes <laughs> come to reading good <laughs> good <laughs> Just the same kind of authors and that's that's what I want to talk about next basically and that's world building. Sure. So mm -hmm. how much, uh, how do you do your world building? Because there's so much in world building, right? You have, you have to look at everything, you have to look at geography, culture, trade, economics. So where do you pick up your elements from? Well, you know, I think that that's, um, it really depends. I, I do write a lot of historical fiction and historical fiction, it, it, it's got its benefits and its and its drawbacks for sure but i think one the interesting thing is about how i learned about you all is that i firmly believe that fabric is one of the best ways to do world building fabric is going to tell you almost everything you need to know about a culture from their agriculture their trade their status their races because you're going to have to ask who who picks the cotton, right? Or who who who's harvesting the flax? Who's gathering the, the silkworms? Who grows them? Who benefits from them? Who's selling it? How far does it have to go? All of these questions, what's the climate like that you're growing it in? So all of these questions are a really fun way to build to build your your world. And our world has such an incredible history with fashion and with materials. Um, I don't have to tell you if you're familiar at all with <laughs> with Asia and India and how the, obviously <laughs> how, the, how 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 huge of an impact it had, how colonialism impacted it, how, you know, there was just atrocities done, but there were also incredible things that were done from an artist's perspective. I mean, you know, I sometimes assume that people just know this stuff, but clearly I've had more response over my, I call them my thread talks, um, than just about anything I've done because people, this is something so common to us. The last hundred years have dulled us to the concept of how important clothing is and you know, you didn't own 70 shirts a hundred years ago, even with the beginnings of mass production. And you often remade a dress over and over again. But if you were really rich, you could wear a dress, a different dress for every event that you had. And the scaling, how much money that cost, we all, it, uh, there almost isn't a comparison because it was so expensive before to own and produce clothing that $500 then is is so much more now it still sounds kind of like a lot of money like a 500 dollars dress but a regency gown for that much we're talking about it could be the close to thirty thousand dollars for a wedding gown now which occasionally you hear people doing that but that's usually kind of but that's just a regular you know it's a very nice gown so 
I love that aspect of world building. I love food. World building through food is very similar um, in terms of access and agriculture. You know, you really kind of have to think in a lot of ways about how how a culture builds. We know that, you know, pastoral cultures have very different tendencies in terms of how women are treated or how religion grows versus uh, migratory societies have very different understandings and how that relationship is to the earth and to animals. And so I like to kind of start with what I know of the world and then start asking those questions, the what ifs, the why nots, and build on that. You know, what would it look like if there was real magic that we could see and feel so people couldn't didn't have to go hungry. You know, what if you lived in a world where women just could decide they didn't want to get pregnant, like some animals are able to do, right? They, they just, it wasn't a concern or that there was a magic drink you could take or a ritual that you could do. And that starts to spin off all these things. Now, that all comes with a caveat, especially in historical fiction, because I'm a major nerd. I'm probably the number one visitor to the Met Metropolitan Museum of Art website <laughs> because I love it so much. Um, but... I have to be careful not to get what I call lost in the China patterns because I love accurate historical detail. But if I've been spending three hours trying to decide what pattern should go on the teacups in this scene, I'm probably not really paying attention to the characters because as much world building as you can do, you don't want to lose that really important part, which is the emotional connection that you're your readers have because no matter how you know exotic or strange the world we're still reading those stories in this world that we're in right now you know this is still our we're going to bring our own backgrounds and our prejudices and our thoughts and our emotions to it so um you just have to make sure that that you're not you're not navel gazing too much but i try to give i try to give myself some freedom especially right now in this time of the world because I find so much comfort in research. I will always be a researcher and yeah, keeping a lot of, a lot of links open is, is really good. And, and Wikipedia is fantastic, especially if you, if you start there, many people don't realize how valuable the bibliography is at the bottom of Wikipedia articles. And it's the same thing with, with many other things. That's a great, you know, springboard. So. <laughs> Again, yeah. another point of similarity, like the, <laughs> when you started talking about clothes, right, and making clothes, for the past, um, since 2018, I guess, I started to learn how to knit. So I have oh, been making beautiful. my own clothes. In fact, beautiful. wait, I'll show you. I'll show you this dress I made for a friend. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't sew. I, can, I, I, I knit and I crochet, but I'm miserable. Oh, wow. That is beautiful. So like you know, I put like the back. Oh like, wow! It's a knit dress, it's a knit dress but I that's incredible. I basically crocheted the button bands, and mm -hmm. because I couldn't find out an easier way to, you know, um, make all the to knit the button bands, yes. so I just basically crocheted it. Yeah, you can combine that. I actually, when I discovered crochet, it took me a long time because I started knitting, and my brain was so stuck on knitting that it was so hard for me to change over to crochet. But then I realized that crochet is almost more like uh, like clay in some ways. You just, you have this basic things you can do and you can shape it whatever way you want. That was so freeing for me. I, I love, I actually have some alpaca uh, wool from a friend of mine's alpacas that I've watched grow up on Facebook and they sent them to me and I just, I cannot wait to make something out of it. So I, I feel you. <laughs> wow. 
you know the one of the ways i got over the whole crochet not being natural to my hands was that i knit with my right hand and mm-hmm. i'm a, a lever knitter so you know i just like jam one needle under my yes. hand and yeah and i crochet with my left oh wow that actually helps because you know as a knitter when you're knitting yeah, with it, your right hand you're moving your left hand and your yarn is in the right mm-hmm. thing so when you crochet with your left it's the same arrangement so you're yep. used to having the yarn in one hand and the instrument in one so that helps for me i basically realized that the the thread was like another needle and when i made that connection with the crochet is the you know you have the work and you have the crochet and it's very much it's very similar but yes i I, I'm with you. It's it's amazing. I've never made a full dress that is incredibly impressive. So, <laughs> yeah, indeed. And um, uh, Natalia, coming back to your point, you said that your background is something that shows in in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I know you have ADHD, and I, I also read that your mother and sister suffer from cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think this um, this affected your writing? Well, I think those things, I mean, certainly for me, I started writing quite young and most, and I read uh, voraciously. I mean, my most prized possession was my, you know, my own little library stack of books. That was just the best, you know? And so um, it was very natural to me to kind of move into writing. My dad actually is also uh, ill and he's had, he's had a series of rare diseases since I was about six years old. So I grew up in a kind of unusual family dynamic where my, my father really couldn't be the sort of, you know, macho baseball playing dad um, as much because he would get very, very sick. He was bedridden for quite a few years. He's doing great. He's still around. <laughs> um, but I think I learned to, you know, my hyper focus is writing it's one of them for sure and and i have many interests very many interests but for me the sort of meditative ability to kind of go into my stories is really how i process emotions and oh my dog is saying hi um i was like what is this this is a dog um she's very cute but uh i learned that you know art in general became kind of my palette for emotions it just i'm not i'm not a naturally expressive person necessarily i don't when i'm feeling away i don't tell people around me i tend to keep it very much in so art has always been the healthy way for me to get that out because i didn't want to rock the boat when i was a kid i didn't want to burden my parents with more than that they dealt with and my mom's cancer when i my see my actually my freshman year of college um i had to change my college initially i, I did one year at the university of uh, of massachusetts and amherst because she was so sick and i stayed home with her i actually had gotten into Ivy League schools and had decided last minute that I was going to stay home and help her. And I don't really remember much of that year, but I did a lot of writing. And uh, really, I started writing more seriously as a speculative fiction writer because I had quite a few years where I was like, I don't want to say that I write fantasy. It's so dorky. And then I just said, (laughs) I don't care. I am a dork. I'm a complete geek. And I love this stuff. And I'm not ashamed of it. And I also had my son, I have two kids, uh, my son who uh, is is autistic. So that I didn't know obviously initially, but I started writing and really taking myself seriously and kind of committing to writing when I had him because I had this moment that just said, I don't want him to say, mommy, what did you wanna be when you grow up? And I said, would say, I wanna be a writer, but I don't have anything to show, right? There's nothing I could say. So that, that really was my impetus and we've spent the last 15 years working so hard with him that I didn't quite 
put it together that it was very likely that I had ADHD. It really took until, and I'm almost 40, so um, it took until uh, about six months ago where I really, the, the, for me, the strain of, of quarantine and losing, I, I, you know, with ADHD, you love novelty, you love impulse, you love plan, you know, th- things to look forward to, changes in your day. This is all very exciting for me. And I, I work a job where I get to travel. I would travel the world. So I used before, before this year, I was probably in Europe five or six times a year. I got to, it was always something to look forward to. And all of a sudden that stopped and I was just stuck at home and I was getting so overwhelmed so exhausted at the end of the day I didn't have time to write I didn't have time for anything and I got on TikTok because my daughter who's eight was like I wanted to make sure I knew what she was talking about and I love social media I've I've absolutely love social media it can be terrible but it's been the, the single best part for my career ever um and I started getting all these videos from people talking about women with ADHD and it was bizarre this algorithm <laughs> seemed to quasi-diagnose me and at least give me some new language and things that I had struggled with my whole life that I thought was just my own shortcomings. So I, what has been really freeing for me is going, I had to go through those whole, I mean, here in the United States, it's difficult on a normal day to get good psychiatric care. Thankfully, I was able to do it, work with my doctor, get on better medicine. I've been trying different medications for anxiety and panic and depression for years. Well, there's a big reason that didn't work because I was treating a symptom and not the cause. So it's been incredibly eye-opening. And like I said, the, the relief has been great and it's been wonderful for my writing and for my art. I really had some difficult times it's difficult to realize that you are fundamentally different it's one thing to feel that way but then when you realize like oh no this stuff is all it's not this doesn't go away I get to treat it and learn my way around it but once I let go of that I kind of said you know back to what I was saying about my emotions art is my emotional language and I want to share it and so I have anyway but you know it's kind of given me a little bit more impetus to, to keep going. And I think it's important to hear, you know, people that are neurodiverse writing neurodiverse stories to have characters. I think certainly there are some in uh, Queen of None. I don't think mm-hmm. I, I, I could, I, I think a lot of them could be diagnosed with a lot of really interesting things. And some of them have probably a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, yeah. But the story that the book I'm writing right now, I actually have two main characters and one is autistic and one is has ADHD. And that's been really fun to kind of go in knowing ahead and knowing like I know enough people and I have enough of this that I can do this in a way that people will probably not know unless they actually know enough people. Because mm-hmm. as they say, you know, one person with autism means, you know, one person with autism. It's it's not a spectrum. It is a, four, you know, it's it's four dimensions of how people are. And, uh, and that's, that's an important thing for me to be able to do, especially from an own voices perspective now that I am officially there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I, um, yeah, of course, um, <laughs> that is amazing. I would love to read your new book when it comes out. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you spoke about how fabric is, uh, you know, so fundamental to world building. And I did notice that um, in, in the story, Anna, the protagonist, she touches a lot of fabric. There's a lot of smells. There's a lot of picturesque nature. Um, it does 
it was quite nice. I mean, I could smell the blossoms of the apple tree and, uh, you know, look at when she goes into the forest with Lancelot. It was amazing. Um, so, yeah, we had a few more questions about your book, Queen of None. But, of course, this is the non-spoiler section, <laughs> which people can hear about. Um, so, personally, I really enjoyed the book a lot. Like I told you, I stayed up a lot of nights. I am a student and, um, you know, I work on the laptop the entire day, so my eyes really pain at the end of the day. But it was so interesting that I just had to stay up at night and look into my mobile screen till I finished it. Um, and there were some real moments that were very relatable to me, even though this is set in, you know, the Arthurian age, it was pretty interesting to me. Um, for example, you know, when Nimue, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, when Nimue said that, you know, when she was born, she just wanted to eat a lot of food. She was really hungry. I can relate to that all the time yeah and that's not the only relatable part right like i think what you said in the beginning when you were talking about the book about having a certain feminist perspective here and i think we both really related to it uh i couldn't read the book in its entirety for a very simple reason that i would read a line and then that line would just hit me deep in my soul and I would have to just like put the book down and be like, some things never change or do they? <laughs> well, that's Most always beautiful definitely. to hear because I, 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 you know, you want, you want it to be right. And, you know, I, I, it's kind of poetic. There's a long poet, poetic history for Arthur. So I want the language to be lush and people, that's something people always say when I get reviews, lush writing. And I, I guess it is. I, I want it to, to evoke feeling and that we, you know, English as ridiculous as it is of a language, because it really is, it still gives so much amazing flexibility. So many words, they can all mean the same thing, but they sound different. They look different on a page. I have a lot of opinions about, you know, fonts and typeface and the way things look together. And I, I wanted to make that a, a big thing. And the environments are important because I wanted this to be sort of not really historic if you read the the opening i talk about how it's kind of out of history it's like a a reflection of it because there was no arthur there was and everything we know came if you want to be historic you're going to miss out on all these other characters so i said if i just say this is the myth but kind of through a mirror of time then i could kind of go with it and i i looked i love the pre-raphaelite artists and their their vision of the arthurian world and the women are always so statuesque you know they're not they're not wimps they're they're strong physically strong beautiful women they're muscular they're round they're curvy and they're draped in these incredible dresses and they're always in the middle of doing something amazing and those were really a huge inspiration for me. It's like, what what is going on in this picture? And how can I try to capture those moments where all the details are there? And it takes, you know, you also know that the reader is going to bring in their own experiences and things as well. And I think for women, we are so often not in the stories. Or if we are, we're just like plot points, you know? And I I wanted to, to make that more, more than plot points, for sure. Most definitely, yeah. In fact, I... I, this specific point of, you know, portrayal of women, um, I really enjoyed the different body types women had in this in this story. And um, I recall telling Sanji that, 
oh you know look there are so many different characters and at some point i was rather um flummoxed yeah by this portrayal Thank of you. you know when when a woman is round like the kind of times we live in mm-hmm. if you have okay you're round it's a bad thing for us right like how many times have people just told us you know like lose weight <laughs> but in the book when you are talking about say um, a certain this is the non spoiler section yes, let's not not too many spoilers yeah. so well i mean I, i a good example is guinevere i wanted guinevere to be yeah. very very round and earthy i mean she is a heavy voluptuous woman and she gets pregnant and she gets even more voluptuous and it's not and she is the most beautiful woman and i mean arthur did saw her and didn't even really dig chicks but saw her and was like she's so beautiful i have to have her you know and that and and i don't think that i it's funny because i do it unconsciously now just because i know a lot of women and i know women come in all shapes and sizes and beauty is so much more interesting when it's inclusive you know it, and and we have different different abilities as on top of that as well and and that's another thing that tiktok is fantastic about that i've never seen women taking so much control of what is beautiful and putting their it's an amazingly brave thing as well of putting your body out there flaws and all and saying you know calling out women who are you know normal not normal but but straight sized women saying oh i have a little tiny belly and going no this is a belly <laughs> like you know this and this is beautiful and this is fine and this is how women's bodies are. i've had two kids you know my body will never go back to whatever it was before it doesn't mean that it's wrong or flawed and and that was the other thing with anna she has stretch marks at one point if you remember it's like very clichy yeah, you know that's that's the line that comes out to me you know when she's telling she's telling gwen uh, when she says that what does a total uh, good what does a comely man like what will a comely man like him see what this body that has born three children and has marks scars to show for it mm-hmm. that's one yep. of the times i had to put the book down <laughs> <laughs> but it's something we all i mean women through since the beginning of time our bodies change so much our minds change i mean i joke when i was pregnant with both of my children i think i wrote this a little bit into the stories that i felt like a different person i was not myself i didn't write i didn't play music i didn't paint i just i loved to watch weird tv shows i was really into bizarre foods when i was pregnant with my daughter which is like you know andrew zimmern travel, traveling the world eating the most bizarre gross things you could ever imagine in every culture in the universe i don't find it gross i find it fascinating i'm sitting there just like how many bugs is he eating you know like <laughs> straight from the cow blood straight from the cow sure you know like it was just you know i love learning about what that stuff is like and i think when i was pregnant it was just i don't know i found it and i watched a ton of the vampire diaries i watched the entirety of that entire series <laughs> i don't know i can't explain it It's all right. We don't judge your your secret is safe with us and with whoever is listening to this yes. YouTube stream. <laughs> um no, but yeah, I, I definitely found it very relatable and especially you know how people have this idea that oh, women should have um round breasts, big breasts and a big butt, but they should be stick thin. That is yes. completely unrealistic, you know. Yeah. And 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 there are some lucky women who have that particular ideal, but as someone who grew up in the 90s with heroin chic, I was like there's no amount of dieting that will ever make me 97 pounds. Like there's no there's, there, I would be dead. 
but that was the and, and it's interesting because in the middle ages as well it was young bodies especially almost you know barely pubescent bodies were considered beautiful but then there was a time where in rubenesque women right in the baroque period with cellulite everywhere was considered they, they called it butter fat was the was the description you know roles were beautiful and, and that's the thing beauty is not a singular experience and there's so many cultural things that pay into that we just unfortunately with mass media and with you know the beauty industry it's so much easier to sell things if we tell people that that's the case for me was i actually someone commented on this i think two days ago about my eyebrows and i always laugh because i grew up in the 90s eyebrows were not in like eyebrows were you had pencil thin eyebrow i waxed the heck out of my forehead i'm just glad they grew back and people are always like what did you do to your eyebrows it's like nothing it's just <laughs> like that's and now it's now it's big deal and, and brow bars are all the rage the people penciling in and microblading and everything and i'm just like well when i was in high school you know people that said i had caterpillar eyebrows and why don't you pluck your eyebrows more and you know beauty is fickle that's why it's more about you want it to be more about the people and then if you represent a wide variety of people you're not you're not d defining it as one thing so indeed yeah beauty i guess does lie in the eyes of the beholder mm -hmm. so yeah yeah that was uh, amazing i i mean i i really enjoyed you know reading about Pfeiffer and how she was beautiful and then there was gwen and there was um, Mavra, who had a different, mm -hmm. completely different, although they were sisters, you know. Yeah, and that I, that's actually, so the oldest stories, the Welsh triads, which are potentially even more ancient than when we first have them in the 10th century, um, they say that Arthur has three wives named Guinevere. The three wives of, I, I remember reading that and being like, everything's three, right? Three wives of Guinevere. They also had his three favorite mistresses, so clearly he had a lot going on. But uh, I thought it would be neat to play on that and have the three sisters of Lodi Grants. All their names are from the same name. So Guinevere, Maura, and Huifar are all different Welsh derivatives. So that's kind of how I played that one out a little bit. That was really interesting how that I <laughs> did that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, Ashwini, I was saying that, you know, things that leapt out to me didn't leap out to you and vice versa. Like, you you noticed the language thing while I did not. I was just very much, you know, in the flow of things. So, yeah, yeah. Noticed I, noticed how, I noticed how you were using, um, you know, you had specifically mentioned, in, mentioned it, in fact, that you were going to use a mix of archaic and modern language. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't notice it. I, I was wondering why, though. Well, you want to have the feeling of the place, right? So certain words, I think, help to build the world, right? So instead of ghost, we might say ghast, which is an older version of the word. And that makes it feel like fantasy without going the direction of like full Tolkien, where everyone speaks like they're in Shakespeare and it's very, very rigid and you don't quite have the emotional resonance. So I also, you know, did, did fewer contraction words that you know might not have been as common and used 
uh, tried to use the, the sort of that world as descriptors because you certainly don't want to say like she was as loud of a, as a train because there's no trains and even though Tolkien did that very famously in Lord of the Rings um, that just even even he was like trying to speak to his audience but I think I found a, a pretty good mix and I can write more heightened and I'm certainly doing that right now I'm writing a Regency story so people do speak but they're very witty in it and you can't overdo it because then it feels a lot of people will immediately be turned off from it and you won't get the readers so yeah yeah understandable yeah that was pretty interesting um so i would like to move on to the third section of this um, sure interview oh, not yet. i not have yet. one left one, question one left. left okay yeah okay. <laughs> yeah uh, basically uh i think the really interesting thing that i found in the book was okay so um for the people who don't know ashwini and i are indians and indians have a very specific um culture towards a family and mm-hmm. although now we most of us live in nuclear families our families right. included but there was this time where all of us were you know in joint families and we have this tight knit community thing going on so it was very interesting for me to see that you know this this lady anna she has four children mm-hmm. i mean five but you get yeah. it right so uh, so <laughs> but but like her first son she sends him to court mm-hmm. to her brother's place she sends her other two children to their uncle and when she gives birth to her fourth and fifth child rip her daughter but um, she sends her son to her uh, her older sister who was mm-hmm. childless so uh, very interesting for us to see this this mother living without her children something yeah. that we cannot fathom right yeah. not very natural a, to yeah us. and that's just that's an old celtic tradition so the it was actually in some some things that i've read have been said that even the father's a, a man's relationship to his nephew is almost stronger than to their own son that 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 connection in celtic lore and celtic celtic culture way back when was very very strong and this idea of foster children helped to build the families together so ideally if you know if arthur had children earlier he could have even sent some of his children to be fostered by one of his his sister or her sister's family and that's why in the oldest stories gawain is uh is arthur's most prized knight like bar none he could do anything he's he's the rock star and then slowly other people come in and in different tales he kind of changes whole personality changes by the time you get to Mallory he's an absolute jerk he's awful he sides with the wrong people he's conniving but over time that changed I wanted to blend those a little bit but it is it is interesting um and it's not it's not uncommon for for that to happen but they still have big family complexes right like when Anna is done with her time in Orkney she's got to come home and they try to keep everybody as close as possible but yeah the the nephew uncle relationship is is historically very very strong and I wanted to to maintain that in the story and it's different for boys you know always is women in in especially in western culture in higher ranking company uh higher ranking families were seen as very disposable they had the dowry they were going to be married off for an alliance for, I mean, it's essentially arranged marriages, right? It's, it's not a concept that's just known in, in some areas and, and would be, you know, and, and in some places it was almost like this is a loner child. So we're not going to spend the time to get to know them and to invest in their education. This person is, is really a pawn. And that's kind of where you get most of the women in the story had no say at any point, uh, 
with the exception of of Morgane, uh, uh, Morgan and and Morgaz, and even to that to an extent on them as well, that they are just they're they're only able to get away with it because they're Arthur's half sisters. So you're telling me that the Celtic um, tradition they were avant-color in nature. Interesting. They were, yeah. Well, kind of. I mean, it was just considered a very important connection, and very often nephews would be raised by their uncles. Yep. Avancular, yes. Yeah. And and that's the but thing, not all, right? not always, but yeah, <laughs> that's where the tradition came from with Gawain and Arthur. Yeah. 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 Even Morgan and Margos. I mean, they had some privileges, but in the end, mm-hmm. they were women. You know, they had to right. do things accordingly. Or even if you speak of Vivian. I think I'm giving too many spoilers now in the non-spoiler yeah. <laughs> section. <laughs> okay, so, like, so are we, are we officially in the spoilers section? That's okay. We can be. We can. We can make the. <laughs> well, okay. I could give a disclaimer right now that um, I'm going to delve into a lot of spoilers. So, in case you want to save yourself, maybe now is a good time to stop listening. Go ahead, read the book, and then come back and complete this video. We'll wait for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, going to the spoiler section, I, I, like I was saying, Vivian is she was um, a marvelous witch, but constrained only because you know Merlin didn't like her or didn't like her prophecies. Right. It's just sad. She was, of course, more powerful than him because I mean, you know. It, it was obvious that one only um, somehow imprisoned somebody else when they are afraid of them being right. far more powerful, you know. So, yeah, that was uh, rather sad. But uh, talking about Merlin, um, I found it interesting that throughout the book, it seemed to me that Merlin was the focus he was the main villain mm-hmm. so to say but then in the end Anna realizes that she actually had a lot of grievances maybe against her brother too because he was the one really controlling her reigns you know I mean mm-hmm. he was uh, Merlin was just directing um, him but he was the one actually carrying out the orders Somehow Merlin seems like, you know, this omnipresent shadow that is everywhere in the world to the point that he obscures everything that should be important, right? Which which kind of ties in with her whole being able to pull the shadows, mm-hmm. even though the biggest shadow here is Merlin. So I found this entire concept really mind-blowing and poetic. Well, and that that's kind of the idea is in, in a way, Shadows was something I played a lot with, right? And this idea that she he gives her this, pro, or he interprets this pro, pro, prophecy, and he's literally forgetting her. He, he's, he doesn't realize that he's probably missing something very important because he, like many men of his age, overlook women, especially once you've had a couple of babies and you're a widow, you know, you're, you're not you're not terribly important. You're not, you're not going to be, are you going to go off to war? You're not magical or you're not magical enough. I mean, I actually love, love Merlin. I have no beef against Merlin whatsoever, but I wanted, I wanted a sort of, usually Merlin is sort of painted in either sort of a crazy way or kind of, you know, endearingly mad and powerful. And 
I thought it would be better, and that's one of the reasons that I think the scene is so important that when Nimue really sees him for what he is, which is an old man, the humanity of that kind of is is very sad. And I think that as I mean, I don't know how much you know of the whole story, but Arthur's Arthur's stuff is not going to go well. Like the end of the, the end of Arthur's story and Lance's story, and you kind of see at the end, I have sort of seeds of that happening. You know, things are not going to go well for them. And it takes Anna to see that, to really realize as well, I mean, who who knows who's really pulling the strings of everything, you know? I mean, even even she's able to get to the book and, and back to Vivian, you know, I wanted the Lady of the Lake. It's always this ethereal, wispy woman who lives in a lake and has a sword. And I was like, what if she's just a blacksmith and she's really magical and she's kind of a badass lesbian <laughs> who lives who lives out in the middle of a lake and actually has kind of made her life awesome she's got a garden and she's got a beautiful view she got to raise Lancelot for for you know 15 years or so she you know loves him like a son she you know she stuck to her guns she she would not relent to keep herself uh make herself acceptable to Merlin and that's that's the important part about her and so she she sticks to her her swords i guess you would say and uh, <laughs> and, and and merlin is powerful unintended <laughs> yeah merlin is powerful and he does i think his biggest fault is that he doesn't he's, he's such a big picture person that he loses really the understanding of how and when i mean anna really starts to realize because i think she becomes a better character when at first it's about her, it's very personal. It's you ruined my life, you made everything terrible. And then she slowly realizes how all the women that come in and out of, of Carillon have had things fall apart because of Merlin's insistence on having Arthur and building up Camelot and making everything, you know, what it is. They have all been the, you know, the the unfortunate victims. And so she's like, well, he can't see me essentially. What can I do? And it will take time. And it does take time. And that was intentional that it's not overnight. She has to work really hard for a very long time while things are still happening, but she's in it for the long game. And so many, you know, so many of these stories are so cause and effect, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, it's, it's very much like, oh, this adventure and then this adventure and then this thing happens. But for her, it's building it up brick by brick over time making sure that it's it's firm because she is going to go all in at the risk of potentially everything yeah and i i actually now that i look at it it's it makes sense that things happen the way they happen because um i don't think nimue would be able to live with herself if um you know she say stabbed merlin in the heart and mm -hmm. then she, she wouldn't be able to live anyway, you know. Anna would have to probably live with that soul crushed throughout her life. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, I mean, in some ways, I think Nimue is kind of that, it, it in some ways takes from an older Jewish tradition. And I'm, I'm my, my dad's side of the family is Jewish, the, the golem, this idea of this creature created from clay. If you've read The Golem and the Genie, it's one of my favorite books of all time um, beautiful beautiful book and, and, and in a lot of ways Nimue is almost an emotional golem she is she is just this creature of like you said earlier of want and need and desire and but she has no history she has no future she is 
this part, the, certainly this part of Anna, like this daughter she never had that is also connected to her. So in that way, she is kind of disposable, which is which is sad. But but it is this. That's how the story goes. They get locked in the tree together. And that's that's we don't really know what happens after. And that's kind of how I wanted to adapt that particular that particular piece. So I did a lot of twisting things around because that's how, that's how my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was beautiful. You you said that Nimue was like a daughter she never had, but like um, I mean, isn't she also like the mask that Anna mm-hmm. wore? Yeah, and if, absolutely. And and there's that whole thing, right? Like um, I think it was an Oscar Wilde quote that give a man a mask and he will show you who he really is. Mm-hmm. Yes. So how applicable is that in this situation? Oh, absolutely. That- absolutely that the whole um if if you go this the first scene when when um when anna first in uh sees huifar for the first time who's this sultry woman who barely wears any clothes has sex with everybody lives in this basically like circusville in the middle of the castle doesn't give a shit <laughs> sorry about anybody <laughs> around her or what they uh, uh what they think she's she's actually jealous of her she's very jealous of her because she's somehow because her sisters all got scooped up and her dad doesn't ever tell her no and she's attracted to her and she doesn't really know what to do she keeps staring at her and she's this you know red-haired goddess who's like six feet tall and that's who Nimue ends up falling in love with and truly falling in love with and Huifar disappears and that breaks Nimue she's not she's not deep enough to understand that life is back and forth she gave her whole heart to her and she's gone and there's there's no resolve and i think so many of us have probably whether it's through death or just people being jerks sometimes people leave and if you don't have the emotional connection to to beyond that it's so baffling and that was kind of as she was breaking down you know it was important that she had kind of her own her own little journey too but yeah she she does all the things i mean anna doesn't eat much food she looks at food a lot but she's probably got an eating disorder <laughs> she is very you know she's she's very controlling about her clothing and fitting into her clothing and making sure it fits right and meanwhile Nimue is like you know no shoes and complaining about her corsets and getting naked whenever she can so yeah I think there's definitely that all the things that she would want to do including you know getting that close because Anna could never be that close to Merlin there's just there's no way that's nothing would have worked so it had to be completely somebody else that was a really interesting twist that I thought that came in the book and also that leads me to my next question which is basically um, how did you build your uh, magical system in this uh, world because you know there there are like prophecies and then some Mm -hmm. people can do magic so how does that work out here yeah I wanted a lower magic essentially where where it is it's 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 so the idea is that people there are prophets and then there's prophet interpreters so so it's not always just very clear because i think that prophecies can be i don't love prophecy and story i think that that can be kind of a little bit cheesy so i wanted it to be that it could be potentially open-ended and one of the reasons that vivian and and merlin conflict is because they have different understandings of certain prophecies and she's always 
making life difficult for him. He wants to hear what he wants to hear. Sound familiar? I don't know if you know any people that are like that. Um, and then the <laughs> magic, the magic is, is, is more, I mean, in some ways, kind of herbal magic. Um, simple, simple magic is not a lot of glitz and glamour and explosions and changing people into with polyjuice potions sort of a la Harry Potter. It's much more the simple practice discipline of magic or making magical weapons or, you know, but even even in the woods narrative, you know, we hear about one kind of animal that's sort of a magical animal, but there's not a whole lot of it. I think part of it is that there's probably more, but Anna lives a very sheltered life and doesn't get out of the castle very often. And then, but also I think it's a world where humanity is kind of overtaking and, and she's very conscious of that. I wrote a lot of that kind of, it's a little bit of an environmentalism message, but when she's coming back to Carillon for the first time in 20 years, she doesn't recognize it. The, the wild lands of her youth are gone. So she feels like a stranger in her own land. And I think a lot of the magic has been kind of lost as well. So I call it a lower magic, and it's mostly through books and rituals and spells, but there, there's, a, there's a big cost to it. I wanted that to be really clear, too. Like, you know, Anna does all of this stuff, but it takes her a long time, and she loses a lot. And she has to go through a lot of suffering on top of everything else going on in her life to achieve her aims. So I don't like when magic doesn't cost anything. And actually, um, that's one of the points that is made in T.H. White's The Once and Future King, which is one of my favorite books of all time, but Merlin basically explains to Wart, he's like, which is young Arthur, you can't make a loaf of bread out of nowhere. It comes from somewhere. As a magician, you are summoning it from someone. So someone's going to lose that bread. <laughs> you can't, you know, it, basically this nod to sort of, you know, uh, energy cannot be made or destroyed. Matter cannot be made or destroyed. And magic has to hold that. But I kind of want it to be a little bit airy and ethereal too, because you don't want to make it too defined. I don't enjoy magic systems that are overly defined because then I get stuck trying to figure out exactly what it is so um I had one question about Anna actually uh, so you know how she gives the the crown to Arthur mm-hmm. I always kept wondering what would happen if she gave it to her children instead wouldn't she be in a more powerful position that way she could have been but uh, she really hated her ex-husband. <laughs> she really, 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 really hated him. And the biggest middle finger she could possibly give was to, to, to basically surrender the entire you know, kingdom that he was from. Um, and I think that that, that, was, that was her entire motivation is that literally on his deathbed, he was like, make sure as he was, you know, make sure Gowan gets the crown, he will be king of Orkney. And she didn't. And he's kind of okay with it because, honestly, he would have made a terrible king. Um, but, you know, and he'd rather carouse and have not all the responsibilities. And that's kind of, I think, the way she looks at it, too. Is she's saving him from having to deal with all the stuff that Arthur is trying to unite everybody. And politically, it probably made more sense for her to do that as well. But, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Just the middle finger to Lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That was interesting. Also, I, I noticed something about the story, and uh, of course, you discussed it that you did take influence from different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, what I noticed was that there were a lot of similarities with Indian folk stories. For mm-hmm. example, there is this story about this uh, Hindu god Krishna, um, 
his uncle actually wanted to kill him at birth because there was a prophecy that uh, Krishna would bring up about his doom. And so he wanted to kill him and so he imprisoned his mother. But then they actually exchanged Krishna with some other baby so that Krishna yeah. would be safe, you know. And then there's this entire thing of um, Durga, who's a goddess, and she's created by gods, given different weapons by different gods, so she can destroy evil. Just like Anna, at different points, was helped by different people. You know, mm-hmm. for example, Vivian helped her learn the magic, and um, Arthur uh, gave Nimue uh, entrance into Moirland's castle, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I did see a lot of resemblance. And That's was, really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was quite nice, especially the, the baby exchange thing. Yes, <laughs> that was that was something I wrote in. and I have no idea where that exactly came from. But uh, I, I love I love that stories have a commonality to them. And in some of my other books, I look a lot more at sort of these ideas that there are key gods or creatures or beings that are so common throughout so many stories. Um, I know when I, I mean, I grew up Christian, non-practicing these days, but when I read the Bhagavad Gita for the first time, I could not believe how much from the Bible had taken from the Bhagavad Gita. I just was like, I can't believe this. Nobody told me this. And I do, and that's something I think that's so beautiful about story and story traditions is that there are these common threads. And, and my area of study was actually the Middle East influence on the Arthurian legends. So mm-hmm. there's all kinds of really interesting stories from Persia and the Crusades and everything that made their way to, to England so far to even find that Palamedes or Palamides is Arab in the stories. I mean, all the way back in the Middle Ages, there was, a, they called him a Saracen, but he was, uh, you know, he was an, a Muslim knight that converted to Christianity. And I mean, the fact that they were talking about this so long ago goes to show how much our stories are intertwined. And that's, I just, I love that. I mean, I, I wish there was more diversity. Somebody asked me about casting and I said, I would love to see if I ever got to see this in a movie, I would love to see blind casting because it doesn't matter to me. Like it, it really wouldn't matter to me who anyone looked like. I, I wanted, I kind of had Anna and Arthur look like sort of Viking quasi golden children, but it doesn't even have to be. There's no reason. It could be, you know, very Bridgerton-like and, and the story is still the story. It's, it's a story we're all familiar with. And I think, you know, the Arthurian legend moved from country to country and it got all the way to the Middle East. And there's even versions in Japan and China and, you know, Australia and all over the world. People found something very compelling about this deeply sad story. It's not a happy story. <laughs> nope. Nobody ends up okay, you know? Um, I don't know. I think maybe Anna and Bedivere might end up okay in the, in the very, very end, but we'll see what happens. I, I, I still <laughs> hold out hope for the two of them, but... <laughs> Yeah. I personally think that their relationship was very interesting because um, as we know Anna was married off when she was what 12 and she's loved him since then mm-hmm. like 12 is awfully young to be fair you know I, I wondered if um, she liked him just because he was the only decent man around her yeah well and I think too that he's also stuck with Arthur right he's he's his best friend and if you know the 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 end of the stories when Arthur is dying he gives his sword to Bedivere and says please throw this in the lake and he comes back and he's like did you do it and he's like no I couldn't do it 
and then he does it three times, very symbolic, right? And finally throws the sword in the lake. So we know that Bedivere stays with him till the very, very end. And that's why their relationship is so hard because they're, they're the, the in between the two of them is always going to be Arthur. But I think that in a way that makes them safe for each other because he's never going to get rid of either of them. And he's too, he's, he's not very smart. I mean, Arthur, Arthur is very handsome and very well connected, but he's, he's, very, he's not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's the canonical jock. <laughs> yeah, he totally is. He totally, totally is. And he, he loves the boys' locker room, too. Such <laughs> <laughs> <But> a lord. <laughs> oh, speaking of the boys' locker room, we should go to the girls' locker room, and we have Huifar there. Yes. Uh, so she, she just had a very sudden exit. Mm-hmm. And uh, why was that? Uh, was it Merlin who who is afraid of her getting close to Nimue and maybe persuaded her to leave. Potentially. I think the idea, my motivation for that was more that she, she was falling in love with Nimue and Huifar is the kind of person that would have protected herself against that, that she sometimes love is a weakness and she's built up this hedonistic life around herself. And what happens to this version of yourself and all these people and all of this thing, their own cult of personality, you lose your power when you submit to somebody. And whether or not she knew exactly what Nimue was, I don't know. But I think in my mind, she was getting too close. And she's one of those people that took the exit, took the easy way. You know, it's, it's easy to just cut and run. She didn't, she's one of the only women that didn't have to stay. She was there because her sisters were there. But also, I think after her sister Gwen dies, she's much, much closer to Gwen. And um, a few years pass, and I think it probably was just, it was time. So that was kind of my thought. Yeah, she was a free bird. Yeah, but but I think even people who are free in some ways have their own constraint. So I wanted to show... Yes, she seems like she has everything, but we also don't know. Her father could have summoned her home. We don't know what that other side of the story is. So That's we'll true. See. Another interesting thing that I saw in the book that, you know, there's so much we are not going to know about, like this one point. And the other whoa, one was... Whoa, whoa, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there yet. We are not going to ask for sequels right now. I'm going to beg for it yeah, at the end of the episode. Yet. Yeah. No, 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 no. We are going to talk about the very first thing you spoiled for me when we were reading this. <laughs> I, I love this picture of the two of you, by the way, like talking about it to each other. This makes my heart you so were, happy. I was no so idea excited how much about it. You I was don't so know how excited. Much we <laughs> and, and you know, there was this um, one night where I was really excited about the book, telling her everything. And then I start telling her, hey, do you want to learn witchcraft? And she takes out these books and says, well, I have all these books. I love it. (laughs) And I gave her a very Vivian sort of dialogue. I said, you can't learn witchcraft from books. (laughs) And she she flipped because I have never said such a thing before. I was like, what's wrong with you right now? And then she said a lot of book-worthy lines. My most favorite one being, you have to deal with the storm that's going to come you have to change its course and not send it back yeah <laughs> very true very true <laughs> yeah yeah so the thing you spoiled for me was basically this one thing that when anna comes to the court 
and mm-hmm. she meets her son and then she finds out that she's going to be a grandmother and then we know nothing about it after that Oh, Elaine, the young, the, the, well, they, well, she breaks up the marriage and he, he, he kicks her to the curb. So, you know, that, yeah. that grandchild. Well, sorry, which, which point is this when she comes? Right. Um, Elaine is, um, Gwen's, um, fiance. She was not his fiance, right. I believe, but. I right. think she was his fiance. The, fir- the first, he he wanted to marry her. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think there was an assumption that perhaps she was pregnant, that this was something. But whether she was or wasn't, it doesn't oh, matter. No, uh, there's no marriage. He she he agrees to basically live. I mean, she basically tells him, "You can have whatever girl you want. Stop. As stop long as going she out. has a midwife. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. So. You know, the idea is that that she's not good enough for her son. So she plays the whole, you know, weeping mother. How 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 could you possibly do this to me? And um, yeah, we don't know what happens to that Elaine. She just she goes home with her dad or whatever. We don't know. Um, but that I mean, that that's also a nod to there's so many Elaine's in the stories they're, they're literally like five of them. So in some ways they do kind of blend, blend in together. And, and she, you know, she's, she's just doing what she thinks she, she should be doing. And Gowing's an idiot, 18 or 20 year old who, who, you know, doesn't, doesn't know any better. He gets better eventually. That's, that's, if I ever write more stories in this, he'll, he's, he's one of my absolute favorite characters. And I was very mean to him. I definitely painted him as a, as a spoiled tempestuous jerk but um his brothers are much kinder and uh and i mean their dad is kinder too so (laughs) (laughs) their real dad (laughs) yeah exactly which is the other thing i thought was so funny because back then you just never knew right like there were no paternity tests you could yeah so Yeah, yeah. And speaking of the the center of all this, I mean, the only actual paternity test was probably Merlin prophesizing whether the baby was yours or not. Right, right. Which which is how the whole like Mordred thing gets confused because it's a different child that ends up potentially being the end of end of Arthur. And it's and yeah. And, you know, speaking of children, there's this one more line which made me, like, actually keep the book down for, like, two whole days, I believe. And then it was this part where Anna is just, you know, giving birth to her uh, son and daughter. I don't know. I, I know they're fictional characters, but it hurts me to think about it. I know. But, but like, so she's giving birth and then, you know, she we have this flashback of her memory about, you know, her first time giving birth and there's that one where the thing she says that I was myself just a child not yet fully mm-hmm. grown yes. and I was like oh that yeah. just made me things you know it's it's a, it's, like, a, it's a it's a scary thought I mean you know I have a I have a, an almost nine-year-old who's gonna be a young lady pretty soon and I'm and I look at her and I'm just like and I was a very early bloomer and I remember reading you know getting into medieval stuff and seeing how young women were married off and no and of course they died in childbirth because they were barely done growing as they were they were not meant to have children but i kind of i i 
I found it fascinating though that it meant these really compressed generations, right? So, you know, Anna's only in her early 30s at the beginning of the book and she's already been married she's like 35 she's been married for 20 20 20 years you know 22 years and her husband died because he was 64 when they got married <laughs> you know she was she was 13 when she had her first child and he was this old disgusting man and cared nothing for her had a mistress because what are you going to do with the 14 year old girl who can barely you know has no real education and isn't other than pretty she just gave him a ton of money and that's all he wanted so her son is 20 and she's 34 <laughs> and we it's so hard in the modern day for us to think that way but that really is how these generations were so um and that's why you know arthur waits so his child is is 20 years younger than his nephew so again you have these really compressed generations and it really changes how people's interactions are with each other and what the family dynamics are and it gives Thankfully, Anna has a little bit of a chance to to grow uh, beyond that, which I also wanted to do too, because just because you've had your kids and you're a widow doesn't mean that you're not useful in some ways. That's, I mean, Ashwini, you and I knew each other from since we were 13, right? Don't do this, Sanchi. Don't do Fine. this. Fine, not going there. Yeah. But it's hard <laughs> to imagine, right? I mean, Most it's a very... Yeah very different life and a, and a very different understanding of you know what a woman's value was and how valuable her womb was right that was the really big the really big part and I think the, the only reason she was able to get away with it is because I mean she did she loved having a child and that can happen sometimes I I had severe postpartum depression I did not have a lovely lovely experience with my first child but it can happen and, and for her for her story she loved gave her something that was hers you know to have gawain as as a little child who was a beautiful boy gave her life and hope in a time that i don't think she could, i don't think she could have survived because she was so alone um but then she's able to when she's older because she's by the by the time she's actually with bedivere she's a bit older so more more age of consent because they're only like 15 when the book starts so you know that she she was she was like 18 or so <laughs> but she knows that she's she's done the thing she had to do which was that one heir right there's no doubt who that person is so i think even though she's a little more reckless with bedivere at that time people really aren't looking because they're just they're just excited that they're boys and they're big and strapping and bedivere's not around that often up there so <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to go hmm hmm things haven't really changed right like when it comes yeah. to how women are seen indeed I mean, especially yeah. in especially in eastern societies mm -hmm. like india has the highest rate of child marriages in the yep. entire world and currently maybe even child rape yeah yes yeah. and that's and that's i mean that is literally what happens to anna i mean that that and it's 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 horrible and i i, I writing about that kind of thing is very difficult and I didn't want to spend too much time in that place but it does change her forever and it does and so many women around the world have these experiences in so many different color cu cultures we I mean, can't even even in the United States this is, this is still a big problem um not with the marriage part necessarily but but the you know child abuse and and, and sexual abuse is still a very very hard thing but back then it was there was no recourse it was just how it was. How lucky you are, princess. You get to marry a king. Is anyone going to feel sorry for you? No. 
and she doesn't ask for it but she makes she she finds her revenge she finds power through it um and i think that that's it's it's not a certainly not a good thing but it and it's not meant to be anything other than sadly historically accurate you know whenever you're writing things like this it's a very it's a very difficult thing to write about and i think a lot about it but um i think that's one of the reasons too that i i actually wrote a couple more of the more intimate scenes in because I wanted her to also find some kind of healing through it because she had, even with her time with Bedivere, they were, they were kind of kids. <laughs> they were kind of figuring things out and she kind of comes into her own from a, a sensuality perspective. And I think that's an important thing for her as a character. And I, 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 I mean, I love saucy scenes. I think they're fantastic, but as a, as, in this particular story, I wanted to be sure they were doing more than just being sexy because because that's her especially from a first person perspective i'm always thinking like if she's actually writing this down and i think part of it too is like she wants to be like yeah i did that night and i did that night and i did it's like <laughs> she's she's gonna have a little bit of of her own uh you know staking her claims but but it is it is very very complicated and we know you know men often married two and three times because you know women we knew so little about childbirth. We knew so, so little about how to preserve a child. And it was not necessarily that people, people always say, oh, people, the average age was 35. And it's like, it's no, it's not that people lived to 35 and died. It's that so many women and babies died so young and other men as well died of very preventable diseases very young. But if you lived past your teenage years, you probably lived to your 60s or your 70s. It's just... We also know from the archaeological uh, record, you were in bad shape by the time you died. <laughs> Badly set bones and horrible arthritis and tooth abscesses and all this, you know, all this stuff. So I like to think there are magic toothbrushes out there in, uh, in, in the Earth, <laughs> Arthur universe. Maybe maybe that's not so bad, but yeah. Yeah, they're probably sticks, which are, I guess, magical toothbrushes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, this we have to discuss. Okay. Um, yeah, I knew I would forget you. Probably yes. the most important line in the entire book. Um, where do I even <laughs> begin? <laughs> you want me to begin? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so he says, I knew I would forget you. So this again ties up with the whole Merlin being omnipresent, you know, almost all knowing. So does he actually know who Nimue really is? And if he knew who she really is, how did he let her go this far? Or was all of this prophesized? If all of this was prophesied <laughs> and if everything is prophesied, where does free will come in? Yeah, it's a big it's a big question. I like this idea that Merlin is in pieces able to have the whole story but never at once you know it's kind of like the the, the software is too much for the, the hardware to run so he can't be everywhere at once all the time he can have glimpses of it and he can be as he's getting older the machine is getting even harder for him to focus on and he's given so much of his life and so much of his effort and his time and he probably put it down somewhere I need to watch out for Anna but he's he is a victim of his own prophecy and his own prophetic uh thing so even if he knew it's kind of like when you have that weird fe feeling of deja vu that you've been somewhere or you forgot something and no matter what you do you can't remember it but you might have a dream and you wake up in the from the dream but then you still don't know 
what exactly that was. And that's kind of what I wanted. Because if you notice, especially in the first part of the book, he's always around Anna. He's always shadowing her. He's always popping up. And he's not doesn't really have a reason to. But I, I wanted it to kind of be almost like he's like, there's something I meant to something on the why am I here? And as someone with ADHD, this happens to me all the time. I'm in the middle of the kitchen and I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing here. Um, but that idea that he just can't, he can't hold it all at once until it's too late. And he knows he's going to die and he knows this is the end. And, and in a way, he still was able to do everything he set out to do. He just never saw his own fate coming. And I think in some ways, her prophecy is his death prophecy, if you look at it that way. Wow. That is profound. <laughs> that's better than her, her birth, his death, you know. Ooh. Which is, I mean, that's why it's important that the, the book opens up really with her imagining him kind of appearing out of nowhere. And then he fades into nothing at the end. So try, try you try to keep... When you're an author, you try to keep these things balanced. You know, you hope it works and you hope people notice. <laughs> people, people notice. It was driving us crazy. <laughs> yeah. It really and we don't want to like... answer all the questions. You know, some, something, I mean, free will is a big question. I'm not ready to answer that one. But I, I like the answer more that prophecies are slippery and even the prophets can miss and not realize. So. So, will we know more? Because, like, are there going to be sequels? We are excited. I would like there to be... end of the episode. Okay. Do we want to wait? I would like to. I have some ideas. There are a couple of other Arthurian stories that are lesser known, including one that has a trans character that's very, very old called Silence or Silence. And it's a character who lives their life as a man, but is born as a woman. And it's really interesting and very complex and is a knight in Arthur's court and all kinds of stuff. And I always thought that would be really interesting to fold into that story. I also would love uh, Gareth's story. So Gareth is one of the knights that sides with Lancelot. He's also Anna's uh, son. Um, and I always thought he was a really interesting character and made him a twin to Caharis because they have such similar names, but they're, they're different and, and they're kind of the younger generation. So I think that if I, as I was thinking of what I want to tell next, I would love to see that, that those people, the younger characters have their own story and see what that, how that would play out, uh, as Camelot deteriorates, but also as the Holy Grail comes into, right. This idea of like. Uh, of that as well. And I would love, I, I love the, the stories of Percival. Unfortunately, the Nazis in Germany got really obsessed with the Percival myth and it's really hard to get into without getting there. So I'm, he actually has a sister as well that I was thinking of actually using her in the stories too, because that might be a way around it. But like, yeah, the Nazis love Percival. It's so annoying. It's like, it's like one of those things, like every time I would get into it, I'd be like, oh yeah, we don't really talk about this because... Hitler loved Percival, but he's one of the 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 folks that finds that. And then Galahad, because Galahad is the one that achieves the goal in this it, the, the Grail in the story. So I kind of thought it would be fun to do sort of a multi-person point of view story, where you're getting kind of all these different angles as Camelot is kind of falling apart and kind of what happens after. So personally, I would love to. Of of course, I want a sequel, but I would also 
love to read a prequel speaking mm-hmm. of um, Igraine's story and Vivian's story mm-hmm. and in fact what happens to Vivian I would really love it if she somehow shatters this uh, lake magic yes. and just comes and seizes the moment it would be amazing well, I have a feeling Arthur will be running to her very quickly because uh, that's his aunt, right? So if, if Merlin is gone, who's the next best person, right? And who gave him that beautiful sword um, <laughs> and the other sword, but yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's true too. And I also, I, I thought about writing a novella, sort of a shorter story of uh, Anna's time at the castle, because if you read the book, it, she poisons her husband, like she, she kills him. And that's yeah. the only reason that Morgan has a hand over her is because, like, I will tell everyone that you murdered your husband. And she's like, okay, I guess I'll do what you ask of me because I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to be a murderess that obviously. But I think it would be interesting to see her younger and how her romance kind of blossoms, but also what she's able to do to kind of figure out how to navigate a politics in a, essentially a foreign country. I mean, at that point, Scotland is very far away even though it's not that far away. Um, It's very far away from them and very um, uh, rough, you know, it's just a very rough place. And she's been brought up in the, in the lap of luxury. So. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, even Arthur would have an amazing backstory. I mean, Mm -hmm. when does he discover that he likes boys? Mm -hmm. Um, Even Morgan, uh, her her adventures with Merlin would be fun to know. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot, lot of potential for sure. <laughs> and, and my personal favorite would be just you know adventures of Wayfar, like needle needle, <laughs> which like wherever she yes. goes, whatever she does. Her and her merry band out in the woods doing all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we are all team Wayfar. 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 It's a hard name. Yeah. You know, so so the first time Ashwini told me about this character and she sent me a passage to read because you are very active readers for this book. So I read the passage and I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) yes, yep, very much so. Very much so. She's sort of the, the, the sultry sort of feminine ideal, but also has kind of masculine qualities too. She kind of has that almost, almost a non-binary kind of, she doesn't, she doesn't buy into either gender requirements she's just kind of her own person and she's very fun definitely one of my favorites as well she also says whatever she wants which is great and drinks very heavily <laughs> she's kind of a pirate like if like she's, in some ways she kind of reminds me of that like you know, that kind of character that's just sort of like this is me <laughs> yeah yeah indeed uh and that brings us to our last section which is my personal favorite the stupid question section. Okay, can I start, please? You know, this is my favorite segment of anything. <laughs> okay, your turn. Fine, go. <laughs> okay, so my first question. Would you rather stay in this age or that age? Hmm, that's a good question. I, uh, it's hard. The older I get, the more disheartened I am with the modern world. But I'm such a research nerd, and the fact that I'm able to, 
like, I mean, here's, like I said, I'm almost 40. So things have changed pretty significantly. I, I studied illuminated manuscripts pretty extensively in, in graduate school. The problem is back then, early 2000s, to, to digitized versions of things did not exist. Now I can Google every great book in the history of humanity and find high resolution pictures of it and go through picture by picture. So that part of me for sure. But at heart, I am a total hobbit and I just love like I love the home and the hearth and hiking. I love being in the woods. So I think I would be fine. Um, if there was magic involved, definitely would tip the scales toward old times. But it's a hard I, question to answer. I, I love how your uh, first thing about the modern world is that it has internet instead <laughs> of it having, you know, women <laughs> empowerment and laws protecting us. Yes, that too, that too. But, you know, for my own personal, it's all <laughs> part of that because I have access to that. And I never would have had, I mean, the, the fact that I have an education and that I have an advanced degree is all part of that. I don't think I would, I would have been burned. I mean, truly, like... I I would be a witch for sure. So in this timeline, I want to stay here. <laughs> we would all be burnt at stake. Yep. We would all be burnt at stake. But you know what? Yep. My The reason why I say this is a silly question for me personally is because it has to be this age because modern plumbing. Why is that not the first thing that well, comes I will say I there was more be, plumbing. I would not be able to deal with there was more plumbing than people think like all the way back to the roman period and even before that there's there's there was more plumbing hot water not so much that's the one thing that i love warm baths so much yeah. that i don't know Same. that i could deal with i don't know that i could deal with with cold water i've had to be with cold water before and it's just whew, spoiled i know i know yeah yeah i um, mean sure english valley civilization and we all had some form of public sanitation and drainage, but seriously, yes. modern plumbing is out of this world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 Modern plumbing, that's my reason for this. Okay, uh, so my question, my silly question, which Ashwini hijacked even before we started this, was Have you ever put a curtain around yourself and pretended to be a princess? I did. I actually turned an entire curtain into clothing when I was about eight years old. There's a picture of it somewhere. But I, I, I mentioned that I have a tiara. So this is, this is my power tiara that I do Aww. wear. I bought I bought it for myself about six months into quarantine because I just didn't have enough tiaras. So um, I, I keep it here on my desk next to my crystals and things. Um, but uh, I love costuming. I love dressing up. I'm a terrible sewer, terrible. So if I ever wear things, it's either cobbled together from secondhand stores or I have to buy it. But yeah, I love, I love dressing up. I love makeup. I love Halloween. Oh, it's my favorite. So yes, the the curtains, the curtains, I I did have a curtain dress. (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, this is a silly question. Yes, definitely. It will always be a silly question. (laughs) Questions are always about context, and in this context, it is definitely a silly question. <laughs> yes. But don't worry, I have sufficiently many of them too. Great. Um, so we are equal. So my next silly question is, uh, I recall that when Anna first came to Carolyn, there was this big tournament that was being organized for the Knights. And apparently the cooks were very busy with preparing a big feast for it. So 
this is really a silly question. I did not think this through. But um, did they not cook fresh food? I mean, why would they start preparing days before a tournament? Yeah, they would actually, because a lot of the foods were cooked ahead of time, things in pies and things of that nature. So the sort of Western kingly diet was a lot of things that could be kind of shelf stable and then rewarmed up again, as well as all the herbs and spices, milling all the different um, flowers and things. So there was a lot of work that would go into it, especially preparing for that many people, not to mention killing, dressing, and cutting up all the animals that you would have to eat. That takes quite a few days to, mm -hmm. to get all of that done. So yeah, it probably would have, and a lot of dried foods, like dried fruits and meats and things of that nature. Um, but I always, if you ever read about the food that Henry VIII had was some of the most ridiculous stuff. Like they would make animals, like fake animals out of other animals. So they would take like a swan's head and like lizard feet and like a, like a bird, different birds for things. They'd sew them together in these like ridiculous edible sculptures. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very strange. That Very is strange. a different sort of violation altogether. Yeah. But I, I did notice that um, there was not a lot of meat. For example, uh, they said that in Avalon, they stayed away from meat because mm -hmm. apparently it would take away your prophesizing powers. And even Anna ended up eating a lot of, you know, uh, she would have a lot of toast and wine and honey and butter Cheese and lavender. And fruit. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It was a very um, almost raw diet, I should yep. say. Yeah, and I love I love that kind of food. <laughs> That's probably I, I I will take a cheese plate with fruits over just about anything in the whole world. Like that's like my favorite food. So that might have something to do with it. I think I think a lot of fantasy is a lot of roasted meat, and it's kind of boring. There's just so much food. Like I, I said earlier, I love tea and tinctures and you know different herbs and spices together and vegetables and things of that nature. And you definitely would have had that. You know, in castle they would have had things like potatoes and cabbages and all this kind of stuff stored for a long time in the cold places because you could kind of do that in basements it's kind of neat how that that worked out but yeah it, it's she, the the there is n not a lot she's, she's pretty much a vegetarian i think if you kind of look at what she eats and she's kind of turned off by you know greasier animal foods but uh yeah good, good notice i love i love describing food and i think that's a really fun way into into a story as well so that leads right. to my next question, which is okay. also about food. So do you like, um, are you very historical when it comes to describing food or do you like just embellish to, you know, make the reader feel like, oh, I want to eat this? Well, when it's fantasy, I feel like I can do more of that. Just kind of playing along within, you know, within the constraints. What I'm writing now, which is Regency period. So like 19, 1812, 1820 they were very specific about the food that they ate, uh, the French, the English. So I have to look up all the stuff and I want to make sure no matter what I, what I do, that at least it's close. Even though this is a Regency world with witches in this particular story, I want to make sure that it's, because to me, it feels like a touchstone to the people to know what kinds of things that they would eat. Sometimes it's disgusting. Like one of the, one of the meals I described was like pork and oysters. And I cannot think of a combination to me that seems like a grosser thing, but that was one of their favorite things in the whole world and they loved you know creamy sauces and, and really fancy things and dessert dessert tables you know that would just go for for days so I, I love I love the art of food and I love to cook myself so I like to think about what characters like to eat and 
um, you know, what they find. And some people don't really find food that interesting either. So it's fun to write a character, characters that don't. I do have my current, my current main character loves food and is completely open with the fact that she loves food. And I, it's like one of her driving motivations. And I just love it. I love that she just is unapologetic. She's just like, I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat some food. And she makes a picnic for someone else in the story. And they're just like, how do you have this much food? And she's like, have you not met me? (laughs) 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 And it can be food is such a ritual and a joy and, and, and the the process and serving and everything is so, so interesting to me and, and different cultures and how food is eaten with your hands or not with your hands or with bread or with not with bread. And, uh, you know, what is considered okay to eat and what is not considered okay to eat. All of this stuff is just no end of interesting. So, all our silly questions have such legitimate answers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think I'm going to go and have a second dinner after this. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was that was sufficient motivation for me to read your book here. <laughs> <laughs> when is it coming out? When I don't know. I, I, I will. I will let you know. I have a book coming out later this year. Uh, which has a lot of food in it as well and it's also a regency book but it's very very different it's the sequel to my first book um and then i I do write a lot in in history so my other stories are sort of edwardian turn of the century monsters lots of food and blood drinking because some of the monsters have to drink blood (laughs) to get to get to survive um but yeah food is almost always somewhere in my stories because i think it's it's just it's just fun and then coming up with your own ideas i actually did a um that, that series called this, These Marvelous Beasts. And I did a similar thing to this, like a, a little uh, writing uh, group that I spoke to about it. And uh, they wanted recipes and they actually made a drink for the book, which I thought was like the coolest thing ever, like a cocktail. Oh, wow. And I, I don't drink, but I thought it was absolutely wonderful and so, so appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Writing is just this thing where you can, you know, just put everything you've ever wanted in this one place together. Yep, you absolutely can. And this, and this reading, you know, we we were uh, really uh, into the book, and we read it like kind of together, and we, you know, tried not to give each other spoilers. <laughs> no, I didn't try any such things. I love it. <laughs> And, and this entire thing has been such a great experience and like all thanks to you, you know, so like, thank you. Well, th- I, I'm, I'm so glad that we happened to bond over chintz fabric and the story yeah. of that because <laughs> I, I, I joke, you know, because I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I said, you know, I'm just going to start tweeting the stuff that I'm doing normally just to see because I, and I started to realize people didn't know that chintz fabric came from India, I had no idea. You know, no clue that this, all of this stuff happened. I mean, I only touch on the very, very surface of it or that it's still being made today in the same way that it was made hundreds of years ago. And it's, it's an art form into itself. And to me, that's, that's just about the coolest thing that I can do. And hopefully you hope that eventually just by being yourself, people will find your writing. And that's kind of the best, the best case scenario. So you're my best case scenario. Oh, thank you. That, folks, was a great episode. And thank you so much, Natanya, for giving us, like, your time and all your wise words. Like, I was literally, (laughs) like, scribbling notes, you know, for what you, for a lot of things you said. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think I really enjoyed not only the episode, but in general, I don't think we put this much effort into episodes. And it was completely worth it. 
Oh, well, thank I you. I feel, I feel honored. I feel honored. So. <laughs> it didn't even feel like, like work because, you know, we got a book to read. Yeah, I know, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like my favorite thing, too. It's like, oh, we have books to read? Oh, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> no, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so, I'm so glad the book connected with you. And I love hearing how it can connect across cultures and experiences because that's certainly what I hope for, too. So just thank you. And thank you. Thank you, Natanya. And hopefully we can maybe see you at uh, some other point of time, maybe yeah, with a new book to discuss. Yes, I will let you know. I will keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.